Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Saul Cole. Saul is the founder and creative director at Saul Colt, the idea integration company. In his career, he has been named as one of iMedia 25 internet marketing leaders and innovators, as well as been called one of Canada's best community builders and experiential marketers. NYT bestselling author and internet pioneer Chris Brogan once referred to Saul as exactly who you want representing your company. And that message has been echoed by media properties ranging from Inc. to Forbes magazine. Today, I'm sure we will be touching upon many of Saul's interests and expertise, including word-of-mouth marketing, stunt marketing, social media, customer experience, and community building. But we will look to take a deep dive on one or two topics, especially becoming a thought leader in marketing and how he manages to lead companies and marketing organizations to take risks with their marketing initiatives. Welcome to the show, Saul. Thank you for having me. This is very cool. Awesome. So why don't we just get going? First off, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I am really happy to have you on the show as I've been a fan of your work. I'm sure we'll get into some of that later. But why don't we just start off about you, about who is Saul? Tell us who you are, what you're up to, and perhaps your journey on becoming a thought leader in marketing. Well, who I am and, and my journey, that's like a five-hour conversation. But <laughs> I will, uh, I'll sort of uh, give you the, the very, very um, summarized version. Uh, who I am, I'm, I'm a guy who, uh, you know, grew up with a, a unique skill. And my, my skill has always been able to get a lot of people to pay attention to things that I think are interesting. And, you know, I could use those powers for good or I could use them for evil. I have chosen to use them for good. And you know, one of the most interesting things someone's ever said about me is, you know, I could get half a million or a million people to all look in the same direction. And what they'll see when they look in that direction is is very satisfying, whereas a lot of people can get people to look in, you know, that direction, but the payoff isn't always satisfying. I, I worry about the payoff. And, and that's something that's taken me years and years and years to figure out. And I know we're going to get into a little bit about my journey, so I can sort of go in deeper about that. But I'm a guy who keep sharing opinions and some sort of hit and some don't. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've never been, um, uh, I, I believe in myself. I believe in my ideas and I keep talking about myself like, like crazy, even to the point where it sometimes seems really gross. <laughs> That's great. I mean, sharing your opinions, I, I think is one aspect of a becoming a thought leader, whether people agree with you or not, uh, I assume. But I mean, for me, social media is a big part of what I do and what you do. And anyone who's ever caught you, even your recent stuff and asked Saul, these things are outside your business marketing. But I've learned that you have, I think, 60 Nike shoes, if I'm correct, if not more. But you're also a lover of art. And what I found most interesting when I dug deep was that you wrote a number of comic books. I mean, can you share and tell us how these interests have helped you within your work and, and within business? Yeah, so I, I think it's so important to have interests outside of what you do for a living. And it's really important for you to bring those interests into what you do for a living. So I'm a creative. I get paid for ideas. I execute ideas. You know, I dream up, you know, things for a living. 
Um, if I'm reading the same books as everyone else and I'm experiencing the same things as everyone else, my ideas are going to be the same as everyone else. But because I purposely almost block out everything I'm supposed to be paying attention to and I throw myself into art and I throw myself into subcultures and things that, uh, you know, are outside of what I do for a living, those are the places I find the inspiration and those are the places that I draw my ideas from. So, you know, if I'm going in to pitch an idea to a company and four other people are pitching that same company, I may not win every pitch, but I guarantee you my stuff is going to be so vastly different than those other four people. They'll still have, you know, the foundations and, and you know, the proper executions, but the actual core of the idea is going to be something so crazily outside of what everyone else is thinking that I either win or lose every project based on whether or not people are willing to sort of come over to my side. Uh, it's never a conversation of, you know, wow, that was so similar. Now let's figure out who we go with. That's awesome. So is it safe to say that you strive to be so different when you come into those pitches against other uh, agencies or idea makers? I don't think it's it's something I do consciously. I think it's honestly just me. Like I think that, you know, it's, it's criminal to be mediocre. It's, uh, it's awful to be boring. And, you know, and, 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 and believe me, like, I don't get the, a lot of the projects that I, I should get because a lot of the stuff I'm proposing makes people uncomfortable, I think. And, and again, I'm going to sound like a jerk when I say this time shows that I'm almost always right. And these people, you know, if there was a project recently that you know, I can't get into, but I blew them away with an idea, but they were just afraid to execute on it. And six months later, they called me up and like a few weeks ago and, and said like, hey, you know, we made the wrong choice. Do you think we could still do it now? And they just had no budget left to do it. So the idea had to be changed and, and things like that. But, you know, it's like there's no reason for anybody to be safe right now. It's such a noisy environment to cut through the clutter and cut through all the noise as a brand. You have to do something crazy. And but I, I know I'm using the word crazy, but not like dangerous crazy or reckless crazy. Just like let's substitute the word crazy for interesting um, where everyone else is trying to sort of be safe interesting always wins and interesting is sort of the world I live in. And that's what I always preach. So, um, you know, the hardest part of what I do is finding people that are willing to be interesting. And, and that's sort of the struggle I, I deal with all the time. That's cool. Where's the most surprising place that you, you found inspiration? I mean, you mentioned diving into art. I mean, a lot of artists will say they find inspiration, even just walking on the streets or, or in the park. Is there any one place that, you were so surprised that you got inspired and, and it helped and it reflected in, in, in your current work at that time. I'm never surprised by things that inspire me because I am on a constant search for inspiration. Every conversation I have with somebody, I'll get an idea. It may not be an idea that I can use. It may not be an idea that fits something I'm working on at that moment, but the way my brain works, I'm constantly coming up with things, good, bad, or, or indifferent. Some things are gold. Some things are not gold. Not every idea is a great idea, but it's still an idea. Um, but every conversation I have, every, you know, time I walk along the street, I can be, you know, just staring at somebody in a weird, awkward, um, way. And they may think I'm trying to, um, you know, sexually, um, maneuver them with my eyes. But in, <laughs> in fact, like, could be something that they're wearing or something about them or something like that. Like it's just inspiration is everywhere. You sort of have to be open to it. So I've never been surprised, but um, I'm always like 
happy when I'm inspired. And, you know, inspiration can come from like a, a bad TV show as easily as it can come from um, an amazing conversation. So it's just, you have to sort of just recognize the opportunities and, and jump on them because like literally inspiration is everywhere. And I know that's a cliche and stuff like that, but you know, like we live in such a busy time and, and such a rushed world that people, you know, the, the old expression stop and smell the flowers. Well, I don't stop and smell the flowers, but I do like always have my eyes open. I always have my ears open. Um, I'll be the first to admit, and I know this is super creepy, but I've gotten so many ideas from just sitting in a shopping mall in the food court and like eavesdropping on people and things like that. Like it's just, it's literally everywhere. You have to carve out like an hour a day to put yourself in a position where you can be inspired. It's easy to get, you know, heads down and work. And I go weeks with, you know, doing that if you're on a deadline or you're pitching something or pulling stuff together. Um, but like, it's so important that you make time to think and make time to breathe and make time to be inspired. Um, especially if you're in a creative uh, environment, because like for me, I only get paid if I'm being creative. So, um, you know, there's time to do the work. There's time to do the thinking. There's time to do the administration, all those sort of things. But like I, inspiration is everywhere. I'm never surprised by it. It's the, the fuel that, that keeps me going. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm guilty of heads down all the time and I guess I need to even schedule that time just to just to open myself up and 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 just let things come in whether it does or not to get inspired but that's great so I used to actually have a calendar entry in my calendar I would block like you know 15 to 20 minutes a day where I just literally forced myself and it sounds ridiculous but I forced myself to stop working and I know there's lots of people who you know, like Apple watches and things like that, where they tell you to stand up and walk around or something. I am like, it's so important to just shut down even just for 15 minutes and just let your mind wander and, you know, turn on a podcast or turn on a TV show or read a magazine. Um, because it like, you need the breaks of monotony. Like there's nothing wrong with working all day, like 18 hour days and stuff like that. But, you know, you need a little humanity and, 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 uh, awareness in, in that day to let some other things in. Yeah, that's great. Definitely, uh, definitely hit point on, on finding that humanity and awareness because everyone's just robots walking around sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and, and I get caught up in it as well. But I guess moving on. I, when I look back, you and I've heard you speak as well a couple of times. You have some really good experience working with startups, some small brands that were looking to grow and scale. At Zipcar, you were the person responsible for launching it into the Canadian market. And you're also a key person in growth of FreshBooks.com. Can you mm -hmm. share with us the challenge of working with small organizations with specific goals of growing in uncharted waters? What were your biggest challenges and, and how did you overcome them? All right, so working with small organizations, the, the thing that I love the most is the fact that there's usually less rules. There's usually a little less pressure. The goals are much higher. So the risk is usually much higher and you can sort of take some big chances because in a small organization, you, you know, I'm not singling anyone out. This is a general statement, but usually you have a gun to your head to sort of make this thing work. So I love working in that environment because you can take greater risks and, and, you know, take bigger chances. The harder part, though, about working in small organizations is um, you don't have the budgets to do some of the like amazing ideas that you dream up. 
So you have to be really more focused and you have to, you know, understand like, like in a big organization, when you have big budgets, you can, you know, take some, some broad, you know, swings and things like that. In smaller organizations, you have to know your customer really, really well. You have to know what's going to resonate with them. You have to know, like you have to nail your messaging, all those things. And that's great because I'd always rather work in an environment where you, you have to know these things, but it's, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's harder to communicate to some people that you have to do the foundation work. So everyone thinks the order of things you do is you design, you develop and you market. But in reality, and, and, you know, a lot of people don't uh, do this, which is a shame. And this is part of the reason why I think some startups fail is before you design anything, you have to do customer identification because if you don't know who your customers are, you don't know who you're designing for. And if you don't know who you're designing for, you don't know who you're developing for. If you don't know who you're developing, you can't market. So marketing is actually the last part, but it's also the first part. The customer identification is part of marketing. You have to do so much more of that in a small company. So, and I am, I know I'm, I'm rambling. I'm all over the place. So, uh, just to sort of refocus. Small brands are way fun because you can take huge risks, uh, but you have to be focused and you have to be smarter and you have to think like hyper creative as opposed to uh, just throwing money at problems. No, that's great. I, I like I like how your uh, your brain was going on tangents and and really going down and and it and and if correct me if I'm wrong, really what you're saying almost everything starts and ends with marketing, especially on a small budget, because you really have to understand who you're speaking to and why you're even really talking to these people and why do they care actually. So it all starts with marketing, uh, developments in the middle and, uh, and it ends with marketing to, to create growth. So thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I guess along that side with, uh, with small budgets, how could someone, I guess, working with a fixed budget, be creative and do that type of word of marketing? I know, I know you like to coin yourself one of the best word of marketers in the world. And and one of your favorite stunts that I know because I'm in the cloud business is when you did the the cloud writing or skywriting uh, of one of the cloud providers. I mean that was great, but if you're on a fixed budget, like what would you tell an in-house marketing professional, like someone who's super eager to make a difference and prove their worth and, and grow with a company? So the rules are exactly the same for small budget and big budget. It's there isn't such a thing as small budget word of mouth and big budget word of mouth. It's just word of mouth. And, and, you know, when I sort of break it down to people, essentially word of mouth, all it is, is giving people something to share. So you have to create experiences for them. If you have big, big budgets, those experiences can be crazy, like the skywriting and things like that. And I'm glad you brought it up because I, I feel, and, and, and so I, I'm like the, the, I'm, I'm the, perfect mix between overconfident and insecure um <laughs> i'm overconfident where i can say i am the best of the stuff and i can prove it but i'm also insecure that nobody gives me the credit for being as wonderful and great as i am because i was the first person in the world to use clouds to advertise a cloud-based service i have done the research nobody thought of it before me and a few people have stolen the idea since. So um, let this be the record that it was all me, 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 me. I love it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but um, so, but, you know, it, word of mouth is really just creating experiences that people can share. So one of the biggest sort of um, unknown facts about word of mouth marketing is, and, and, and I say this in talks all the time, most numbers I make up are, are all BS, but this is a real number from a real trusted source. But 87% of all word of mouth happens offline. 
So word of mouth is happening in line at the grocery store, at, you know, kids' soccer games. It's happening everywhere where there's people that come together at conferences, at business meetings, coffee shops, things like that. People think of word of mouth as just online and on Twitter and Facebook and how things spread. But it's really happening everywhere. And it's happening more offline than online. And I guarantee you not a single person is going to talk about your company if you don't ask them to talk about it and give them reasons to talk about it. So the way you give them reasons can be anything from low budget to just asking them and saying, hey, have you had a good experience? Tell your friends to creating a visual spectacle like the sky writing and, and, you know, sharing it and getting people to tweet it and creating videos and creating actual shareable content. But, you know, sometimes the, the word of mouth can start with a simple handwritten thank you note from a company. So it's it, people get caught up in the budget when it's really you have to get into the mindset of constantly giving your customers something to talk about and encouraging them to talk about it. Because if you don't remind them every now and then, it's never going to happen. So there's like really gross ways of doing it and shoving it down people's throats and saying, please share. And then there's just like treating people in such a manner that they want to share, uh, you know, these things. And, and there's everything in between. So um, I think, you know, people have sort of lost the truth or the trueness of, of what word of mouth actually is. And they think it's, it's all about getting a retweet or a, a like or something like that. But it's really, it's, it's less about influence and more about inspiration. Like you have to inspire your customers to be a part of what you're doing and not treat them like a utility and not treat them like a number or, you know, don't look at your customer as, you know, whatever their lifetime value is, whether it be $19 a month or, or, or anything. Um, you know, perfect example is the uh, company FreshBooks who I've had a, you know, a 10 year relationship with. And, um, you know, FreshBooks is the greatest example of, of loving their customers and treating them with respect. So, this is a company that has a freemium model and a paid model. They treat their freemium customers exactly the same as their paid customers because they know their freemium customers are going to talk about the product just as much, if not more, than the paid customers because they're getting it for free. So there is no difference. And, you know, when every time I travel uh, around uh, North America for FreshBooks, I happen to be talking to you right now from uh, San Diego. I'm here for uh, some FreshBooks business. You know, I, I took uh, 25 FreshBooks customers out for dinner two nights ago. And, you know, it's like the reason we do these customer dinners, or the reason I do the customer dinners, are I want to talk to the customers. I want to get to know them. I want to hear the, what they, they like and they don't like about the product and, and sort of like, you know, solve problems if there are any, thank them if there aren't any. You know, I want them to have access to like me, someone, you know, a representative of the company, they can ask me anything. And if I can't answer the question myself, I get them the answer or I connect them with someone in the company who can. And, you know, the third reason I do it is it's just like it sucks to eat alone. So when you think of those three reasons, um, it sounds like, oh, we're just taking customers out for dinner. But, you know, I'm actually giving these people a reason to talk about FreshBooks for all the right reasons, because one, we absolutely care about these people and that's genuine and it's not forced. And two, you know, we invite so many people to these dinners. There's only a certain number of people can get in. But when I say give them a reason to uh, talk about the company, uh, if we invite a thousand people for dinner and there's 25, you know, seats, like, okay, first of all, only 25 or 30 or 40% of the people are going to open the email. That's just the, the laws of, you know, email campaigns and stuff like that. But out of the people who open that email, 
at least a handful of them are going to turn to somebody and say, wow, you'll never imagine this. I got invited to a dinner from a product that I don't even pay for. That's really kind of cool. Like that's, that's weird. That's different. Oh, what company was it? And then they're going to tell the story of FreshBooks. They're going to sell the product. They're going to talk about their experiences. So word of mouth to me is giving a reason to talk about you big or small so that they can actually bring more people into the, into the company. Cause like, None, like even Apple, you know, a company with a zillion dollars, they would never have enough money to reach every person. But all their users can talk to more like-minded users, get them excited, bring them in, and be part of the experience. So it's always about using your customer base. And, you know, if you're a small company, if you only have a 100 customers, you should know every one of those people by their first name. You should know them personally. You should be talking to them all the time because they're going to make your company better. They're going to give you the insight that's going to grow your business. They're going to help you build your product. They're going to be emotionally invested in it. When you get, you know, a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand customers, you can't know everybody, but man, you should always know a hundred or two hundred of your customers on a first name basis and really like make them feel special and lean on them because they're going to make your company better. Awesome. That, 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 that's amazing insight, feedback and, and ultimately just, just, just a TLDR. Like ultimately it's treat these people like humans and, and, mm-hmm. and give them, ex- treat them as you would treat your, yourself or your mother and, 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 and just have fun. That, that's awesome. That's great. Great insight. That's one of the things that I think, um, a lot of tech companies suffer from. And so I, I'm a little, antiquated in my thinking and i and i know that and i do a lot of things um hard I, I make things harder than they could be because i do believe that the manual process and the and the reaching out and building relationships is so important but um i think marketing automation has really taken a lot of the personalization of the relationship building of your customers away so if i sign up for a SaaS product and i get 30 emails in 60 days and there are all these reminders and there are all these things like that's great. And I know that's how you grow your business and things like that. I'm not against it. I just think there should be a mix of marketing automation and good old fashioned, like the way it used to be, because it's the good old fashioned, the way it used to be is what I do. And so obviously I'm, I'm coming at this from a selfish perspective, but it's how you build your business. It's how you build that word of mouth. If you never actually see a customer, if you never talk to them in real life, if you've never had any real contact, they're never going to talk about you. You're just like, you know, your utility as opposed to um, something that they really care about and can't live without. I mean, it's funny that you brought that up. I was uh, doing one of those trials for a, for a service provider and I got a phone call the next day. I mean, it was they, they do have their uh, marketing automation happening and, and the onboarding happening, but you do get a phone call and I, and it, and it's great to talk to someone and even answer mm-hmm. questions. And, and I thought that was a, a great add on that they're doing and not, not many, like you said, not many of these tech companies are doing that yet or they will be soon, but it was just so it, think about that phone call. So your level of expectation was so low that a simple phone call made you think completely different about that company. And that's amazing. Good on them. Yeah, um, exactly. Because so few people realize that like the bar is so low right now that you don't have to go crazy, but show a little personal, like a, a little humanity. It goes such a long way. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So I guess moving, moving along, I know that we talked about 
the difference between working at a smaller startup that has little to no budget, but word of mouth still makes sense. But you've also have experience working on enterprise companies, large telecommunications, for example, like Rogers. I guess specific questions is what was the difference for you um, leading these larger organizations where you may have an army under your wing to use as well? So for me personally, I'll break it down to personally and professionally. Uh, my time at Rogers was one of the best things that ever happened in my career. I know a lot of people have an opinion on Rogers. I actually am very warm on Rogers. I think that they get a bit of a bad rap and, and people just don't give them a lot of, um, of a chance because, you know, everyone's had a bad experience or, or heard of a bad experience. But, you know, working there as someone who worked in startups and small companies, this was the first place that took the time to teach me structure and teach me process and teach me things. So for me, career wise, it was a very rewarding experience. Um, so that's like sort of my little like thank you. But as far as the differences between small and big companies, I will say, you know, that structure was very different for me. The budgets were much bigger. We could do crazier, like I shouldn't say crazy. We could do big things, but they were less crazy because the level of risk wasn't the same. The we need to protect the brand. And I'm not speaking about Rogers in general. I'm speaking about my entire experience with larger companies, you know, it's like we have, there's so many eyeballs and there's so many people that you have to um, sort of get to sign off on something that, you know, what you, when you come up with this really great, amazing idea, sometimes it's not um, the same idea by the time it gets executed, because there's a lot of people who, you know, want to have a say in things. And that's not good or bad. It's just, it's, it's just reality. So um, as someone like myself who loves to push the envelope and thinks that, you know, it's a shame that everything isn't like interesting and amazing and spectacular and someone who lives by the spectacle, I had to, I never watered myself down and I never got more conservative. Um, but I had to teach myself not to get super upset when things didn't come out the way they should have come out um, because it's just the reality of, of the environment. So there's a lot of people who thrive in that environment and love that environment because, you know, the, it's not that they want to do bad work. It's just their appetite for risk and their appetite for creating a spectacle isn't the same as mine. So I, um, yeah, I think of myself as like a frustrated performance artist who kind of like works in marketing and uses marketing as my canvas, but I want to always create memorable things and I never want anything to be boring. So um, it's not that these companies don't want to create memorable things either. Their idea of memorable is different than my idea of memorable. So I still work with these companies and I still work with big companies and small companies and all that stuff. It's just um, I've sort of learned to understand the client better when I'm pitching ideas and, you know, like I'm, I would never go into Rogers and say, let's stage a fake kidnapping. You know, that'll be great. We'll get a lot of attention. Whereas a startup could, you know, sort of digest that idea and see like the, the value of creating like a, a crazy chaotic moment and, and things like that. Oh, that, that, that's great. I mean, it, it sounds like it actually taught you that experience at Rogers and, and other ones that building that process minded. Uh, if you're coming from the artistic creative side, definitely the process helped. But also from the sounds of it, it helps you not to take things personally. Um, I'm sure coming I up with everything personally, I'm super emotional. <laughs> and like, if anybody like doesn't like my ideas, I've learned to 
keep it to myself, but like I go home and I stab you with a, a pin and a voodoo doll. But it like, it, it has to be personal. Like if you're, you're putting your neck out on the line, it's like, you know, as someone who is the owner of the idea, like it, it shouldn't be. Um, but I think if I ever get to the point where I don't care, I'm not going to be doing my best work. I take everything personally. I don't lash out and I don't, you know, like I don't make a scene and I don't like, I'm not combative. But like in my mind, I make like a mental note that it's like, it's kind of a shame that they're missing the opportunity here and stuff like that. And, and cause like you have, like for me, every idea, I'm putting my heart and soul into that. And I think that's what makes me good at what I do. It's emotionally taxing. Um, but if I'm not, you know, just getting super invested in every idea, the ideas are, aren't going to be as great as they are. And, and like I'm, I'm really, really proud of like everything I've pitched, even if like it didn't get bought. Um, you know, I can repurpose that idea for something else or use it at another time. Um, but like I literally put my heart and soul and everything. So, so yes, I don't disagree with you. You probably shouldn't get as emotionally invested in these things. And there's people who are really good at detaching them. But I actually think part of my, my charm is like, I'm willing to risk everything on every idea. And, and, and I think that's why things don't blow up in my face because I'm so invested in it that it has to work and I'm going to make it work no matter what, as opposed to just, okay, let's just throw this out and see what happens. Right. No, that makes sense. Thank you for, thank you for that. So as I was, uh, digging up, uh, some of your internet history, I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you, you, obviously, you have great experience with both small. When you lar- say internet history, you don't mean my browser history, right? Because <laughs> that's a that's an awful um, tour to to judge me on. <laughs> no, no, yeah, internet history, the internetarchives.org. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I was uh, what I what I was really fascinated was that that you started your career or, or you worked within your family business doing everything from janitorial mm-hmm. work. To marketing. So my, my key question is, how did this experience working, obviously, with family form your philosophies in business, marketing, and, and perhaps even leadership as well? So I, I say working, growing up in a family business was the best business school I could have ever went to. I'm at 13 years old. I, you know, every day after school, I got in a cab and I went to the office and I swept the, you know, we had a corrugated box company. And so, you know, 30,000 square foot warehouse, I was sweeping the warehouse and, you know, it taught me sort of like, you know, doing things and, you know, being responsible and being on time and being accountable and things like that. When I was 16 years old, I had a truck driver's license and, you know, I, I drove a truck at the summer to make deliveries and things like that. So it sounds super unsexy. And at the time I was probably a little resentful and not understanding, but like, Every step along the way, like my father always told me that you have to be able to do every job in this company in case somebody doesn't show up, um, you know, work has to, to go on and stuff like that. So I literally did every role in the company, including running the business. Um, and, and I think that was the, the greatest like lesson, you know, I missed out a little bit on, you know, some fun and, and things like that. But at the same time, I don't know if I'd be where I am today. And I don't even know if that's successful, but um, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't had that experience. Because, you know, like, I, I've seen all the good and all the bad. And, and I've, I, I lived through every high and low of a business experience, um, you know, really, really young, 
So now stuff doesn't even phase me. I can just like, you know, it's kind of been there, done that. Like I, you know, it's, it's sort of funny. I've, I've, I've given lectures at NYU and I've given lectures at Stanford and I've spoken at the Schulich School of Business and I've spoken at all these tier one schools that would never have me as a student. And they want my opinion now on, you know, the future of business or how to run businesses and stuff like that because, um, like and and I don't have all the answers. I've got huge opinions. I don't know if they're answers, um, but it's it's because like I, I've this is like I've been doing this for so long, and I've been I've seen everything. Like there's a lot of people who uh, you know are amazingly successful, but maybe they've only they've only done marketing for their entire career. Or they've only done finance. They've only done things like and you know I I've told people at you know at Stanford. You know, it's, it's wonderful you guys are in business school. Um, but you haven't really run a business until you've lied to a bank manager that there'll be $60,000 in the bank on Friday and somehow magically got it there and stuff like that. Like I've, I've been, I've been to real business school. So I think all those things have been the greatest like learning, um, lesson for me. And, and, you know, like living it, it may not have felt like it, but in hindsight, like it, it's helped me in every job, every position, every rule, every step of my career. Um, because like even just from a perspective of knowing to never get that excited at the highs and never get that excited at the lows, it's never as good as it seems and it's never as bad as it seems. You know, like those are things you can't learn from a book. You can't learn from a conversation. You have to just kind of do. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those things. And it's, it's helped me. Like, you know, I, I'm not a kid. I'm a little older than, than people probably think. And, you know, anytime you've been in the workforce for 20 plus years, you're going to get laid off or fired or have some time when you're not, you know, working and stuff like that. I've had a couple of those in my career. And every time I've been in between roles, I've just been able to do consulting and do things. Now I'm, I'm sort of consulting full time and I've started a little agency, but you know, in between, you know, for the last 20 years, little bits here and there. And I was always able to just jump into something because I knew I could do it and I knew how to do it and I knew I was able to. Whereas, you know, some people would be sitting at home crippled, you know, with fear and, and, you know, um, unsurety, if that's even a word, uh, you know, you know, last day for me somewhere is Friday. I'm working by Monday. It just means I'm working for myself and I'm hustling and stuff like that. Um, I think all that came from just the way I was brought up and the things I was exposed to early. That sounds like the, the masters of business school of hard knocks. So that's, that's mm-hmm. amazing. That's amazing. That's great. So I guess before we close off, what has been your biggest learning to date? I mean, not only as a marketing professional, but also as a consultant entrepreneur, and maybe most importantly for people who may be listening as, as a marketing thought leader. I mean, you don't think you are, but you definitely have a lot of opinions on marketing. So, so what is that and what is your vision for the future? So, um, one of my, my, I think the things that separate me from other people and, and, um, something I sort of preach a lot. And, and again, like this might be something that people, you know, comment on and, and tweet you and say that guy is full of it. But I, I think the greatest lesson that young marketers can learn or, or anybody could learn is not get tool dependent. That's tool T O O L, not T O O. Um, so don't get caught up in the tools, like learn marketing, learn 
like how to market a product because the tools always change. You know, like if you think about in the last 10 years, like, you know, uh, there was a time where companies like thought the only thing they had to do was Groupon. And, you know, Groupon was the cool thing at the time. And now Groupon, I believe it's still kicking around, but you never hear about it. You know, the, you know, you think about Hootsuite, you think about MySpace, you think about all of these different tools that people jump onto and, you know, like they have a good two or three year run, maybe a little bit longer, and then there's something new. So, so many marketers right now are learning the tools. They're not learning marketing philosophy. They're not learning the why you do this, the why this is important. They're learning, you know, just like how to run a, a, uh, whatever the cool tool is right now. They're learning how to do that. But like, you know, look around, you know, five, six years ago, there was a really good market to be an SEO professional. And now SEO has changed so much that, you know, I've been reading articles that, you know, in about two years from now, the, the changes, things are going, you know, it, you're going to have to relearn SEO from scratch. So all these people who went all in on just one thing are now going to be replaced by something else. But the people who understand the why of marketing, so I like to read marketing books from the 70s and 80s because marketing hasn't changed. The, you know, the, the why you do this, why are you reaching out to this person? How are you being persuasive? You know, calls to action, things like that. Those don't change. Anyone can learn the tools. Like I can teach the tools to anybody. Teaching marketing is a bit of a harder thing. So that's the thing that I, I sort of preach a lot about because there's a lot of people who are just like, Oh, I've been Hootsuite certified, you know, and then they sort of like, you know, sla- you know, slap their hands together as if that's an amazing thing. And they're going to have a 25 year career as a Hootsuite certified uh, person. Like even, you know, 10 years ago or not even 10 years ago, seven years ago, People thought they'd have a long, long career as community managers. You don't hear too many people uh, with the the title community manager anymore. Um, so, you know, it's like you have to learn marketing. You don't have to be so, you know, a tool expert. Oh, that's great. I appreciate that. I guess to close off, Saul, if you have any final thoughts, perhaps observations, and and maybe most importantly, any actionable recommendations that you could share for the marketing professionals who are looking to grow their uh, career as a marketing leader? Yeah, I should read everything. Like, you know, and, and, and don't read, you know, just marketing books. You should be reading, exposing yourself to a bunch of different things. And, and also as a marketing person, marketing, remember, marketing is about how people. So you have to learn, like you have to figure out how to tap into people's like emotional um, side of things. Like marketing should be all about emotional where sales is all about, you know, brunt, brute force and closing and stuff like that. But marketing is about being creative. Marketing is about, you know, high emotional IQ and, and things like that. So you have to either, you know, have it or learn to fake it. Luckily, I have it because I think it would be awful if you had to learn to fake it. Um, but don't forget that marketing is about people. And, you know, people like to be treated as humans. And, and you know, the companies that do it well are the ones that always cut through. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing everything today, Saul, and joining us. And I definitely look forward to seeing some more of your creative uh, word of mark marketing work out there, your canvas. So thanks for joining the show. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Saul Colt as much as I did. It was great learning 
and hearing his thoughts on marketing, art, and leadership. The Business Leadership Podcast is a personal project of mine where I strive to learn from today's top business leaders. Please help me continue my mission by subscribing and leaving me a comment on iTunes. I would love to hear from you. Until next week, this is Edwin Frondozo signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com.